Psalm 62. So let's kind of dive in there. So it's a pretty short psalm, just 12 verses long as you kind of glance at it. And as you turn there and look at the very top, we are informed by the superscription of Psalm 62 that this psalm, like many others, was written by King David. And so the superscription reads, To the choir master, according to Jedithan, a psalm of David. So as I've studied it over the past few weeks here, um, I have found Psalm 62 to be a wonderful mix of both practical, but also just of deeply comforting verses as well. So I hope you will find the same. In terms of its poetic structure, um, the psalm is written in three stanzas. Each stanza is four verses long, so it splits up equally that way. Uh, I don't personally find, I didn't find as studying it, that the content breaks down quite along those lines. And so I'm going to break it up a little differently uh, than the stanzas that David wrote it in, and I think he'd be okay with that. Um, it's a very personal psalm, so as you kind of glance through it, you might notice there's many uses of my, and it's also a very strongly worded psalm. Um, some six times there's a Hebrew word used, which depending on your translation can be taken either in terms of exclusivity, and so you'd see it as the word only, um, or else as the affirmative, and you see it as the word surely. And so he has that some six times in those 12 verses. Either one fits just as well contextually, although I will say I think the flavor of the psalm leans a little more to the exclusive side, so I prefer that use of only. Um, it's this many use of the word only that has actually led many commentators to refer to Psalm 62 as the only psalm, um, just because of how frequently David uses that word. So the psalm does not self-identify the context that it was originally written in, um, the really the closest we come, if you look in verses three through four there, let me just read that verses three through four, David wrote, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And so from these verses, we can at least surmise that David was at a time in his life um, where he was under attack by enemies, enemies who sought to remove him from his position. There seems also to be this focus on lying, on deceptive nature of these enemies, right? It said, uh, they take pleasure in falsehood, they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And so this alone, really, as you examine the life of David, this doesn't quite narrow you down to one particular section, that alone, um, but many commentators have speculated that the context of Psalm 62 is that conflict with his son, Absalom. And so for the sake of the context of this psalm, I don't think we need to take a super deep dive into that conflict, but I would like to at least just set the stage of it, okay? And so first, you have David as the king of Israel. And through a variety of uh, sordid circumstances and means, his son Absalom conspired to take the throne from him. And really, it's interesting, what you would find out by studying this turn of events in Scripture is that these happenings, these issues with his son Absalom, is really a direct result of David's sin with Bathsheba, which is, of course, a story for another day. Um, but by the time you get to 2 Samuel chapter 15, Absalom, David's son, has all but succeeded in ousting David from the throne. Um, listen to 2 Samuel chapter 15. I'll just read a few verses starting in verse 13 there. And a messenger came to David, saying, 
The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And so David would remain on the run from his son Absalom um, with these few people who were faithful to him for some time. And so let's suppose that this is, in fact, the context of Psalm 62. Suppose that the backdrop is that as David writes this psalm, he's on the run from his own son. He's been ousted from his own throne as king of Israel. And now let's read Psalm 62 with that in mind, all right? So Psalm 62, starting in verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock in my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. As we dive into the exposition, let me just pray for us here as we get started. Father God, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for this psalm specifically. God, I pray that as we study it together tonight, that you would help each one here um, to focus on your word, Lord, to hear what it has to say. I pray, God, that you would help me to um, explain it clearly. Lord, that in all these things, that you would be glorified first and foremost, God. And again, Lord, we just thank you for everything you do for us, for your word, and for the opportunity to come together around it now. And I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So like I said, we're going to break up the psalm into a few parts in order to work our way through it. Uh, and for starters, the psalm breaks up really nicely into two halves. So it's not quite right down the middle. The first half is verses 1 through 7, and the second is verses 8 through 12. Um, the first half is especially personal. That's really where you're getting this all the my's and the eyes from. While the second half takes more of an outward-facing, instructive tone, you could say. Um, the first half, the personal half, really breaks down further into three pieces. 
Right off the bat, you've got verses 1 through 2. And there you hear from David some amazing declarations of faith, of trust in God, as well as just some awesome praise for who God is, really. That's quickly followed by verses 3 through 4, though. And there it seems like David's focus shifts a little bit. Um, He's looking more at his circumstances, at the people who seek his life, who seek his throne, as we speculated, possibly Absalom, his son. And so it's almost as though you get this sense that he's gotten distracted from where his focus should be for a second. But then comes verses 5 through 7. And I think what David does in verses 5 through 7 is that he gives us an example of how to handle this. When our attention does get drawn to our circumstances, possibly not favorable ones, in verses 5 through 7, David shows us exactly what to do with that. And so we get in those verses him commanding himself to return to where he started in verses 1 through 2, really. And so then in the the second half, having given what I really see as a personal example in the first half of the psalm, David turns his attention outward, really to his readers, to us. And so he begins in verse 8, and there you'll see a general exhortation just to join him in trusting God at all times. In verses 9 through 10, he's going to give two examples of things that we shouldn't trust, right? Two counterexamples from his initial thrust. And then finally, in verses 11 through 12, he finishes with just yet further praise of God, of God's attributes, of his power, of his love, of his justice. And so that's, the, uh, that's sort of the overall layout of the psalm. And so with the stage properly set, let's, let's dive in. Verse 1 again. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So something that many commentators note, if you pick up a commentator and read what he has to say on this, is that it's a somewhat abrupt start to the psalm, okay? In the Hebrew, that word which we get as alone is really the first word in the verse. Something like, alone for God, my soul waits in silence. Many said that it almost comes across as if David is picking up in the middle of a thought, and you kind of get dropped in right there at verse 1. And so I think we can speculate a little bit on what his train of thought might have been that would get you this abrupt start that we find in Psalm 62. And I think we can do that using the context of what follows after verses 1 and 2. So consider again the flow of this first half of the psalm, okay? Verses 1 through 2 are a high note of trust, but they're followed immediately by, a, I won't call it a low, but again, a shift, right, in verses 3 through 4. But then again, that is followed up by verses 5 through 7, which are essentially identical to verses 1 through 2. So you kind of have this rhythm. It's sort of up, down, up a little bit. And I think we can speculate it's reasonable that entering into Psalm 62, David may have been in more of a verses 3 through 4 type of mindset. Um, Perhaps, again, consider the circumstances, right? There he is running for his life, running from his own son, having been ousted from the throne, which was rightfully his. I think it's reasonable to think that he was certainly plagued by many doubts, many nagging anxieties. He was, after all, a man like us. Yes, a man after God's own heart, but a man nonetheless. And so I think it likely, therefore, that in the blank space, so to speak, preceding Psalm 62, 
I think we find unwritten a section much like verses 3 through 4, one where the circumstances seem to be creeping in almost. Um, It's as though there is every reason to just give up hope, it would seem, humanly speaking. So I think in the midst of this great unrest, that David in his inner man, under God's inspiration no less, sets out to write this psalm. It's almost as if to spit in the face of doubt and uncertainty. It's kind of how it feels to me. To deny any residence in his mind, he sets out with verse 1 again. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. You can hear it's almost like he's responding to the doubts that would come. And so that first phrase there, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. What is translated as waits in silence really comes from a single word in the Hebrew. I thought that was interesting. It's a united concept. It's not just this idea of waiting modified by the addition of doing it quietly. No, the very idea is waiting in silence. It's this idea of stillness, rest, quietness, or again, silence. And for me, I think sometimes these words almost tend to lead to this image of like zoning out, right? Um, Of just sort of being there and clearing your mind, waiting in silence. But this is really not the idea at all. This waiting in silence, first of all, is pointed. It has a target, right? That target is God himself. He's waiting in silence for God. And so this waiting is pregnant with a confident expectation, we could say, on God himself. It's not just nothingness. It's not just clearing your mind. It is pointed. It's a directed focus. It's really an intense action of its own. To give you an an idea of what I'm getting at by way of analogy, um, I think in the sports world of the catcher in baseball, right? So picture the catcher. And there he is right before the ball is pitched, And it's going to come at some 100 miles an hour, right? And he's still. I mean, he's not moving. He's not looking around. He's focused dead ahead. But I don't think any of us would say that he's not doing anything, right? He's not saying anything. He's not moving. But I think he's very much doing something. It's that intense focus, that waiting on someone particular for what's about to come. And so I don't know if that helps you or not, but that was kind of the image I had in mind. And so this is David's declaration, that his soul, his inner being, is waiting in silence for God only. Only God is worthy of such intense, focused silence such as this. He trusts God and whatever God will do in the situation for him. And so it's for him, for God, that David waits in silence. And note well the fact that David said specifically, my soul waits in silence. This still silent waiting and expecting takes place in David's inner man. He's not saying that he is holed up in some cave somewhere, um, having taken a vow of silence, right? That's not at all the point here. That's not the image you should have in mind. This is not let go and let God. This is not just stop doing whatever you're doing and wait for God to burst in and do something. Outwardly, David was still very much taking action. He was on the run. He was commanding his men. But inwardly, in his soul, 
he was set with his eyes on God. The idea is that though David took action, that there was no anxiety, no stress over the results. That David knew whose hands the results were in, even the results of his own actions, right? So yes, he's still active, he's still doing things, he's running, he's commanding, he's trying to improve his situation, but ultimately in his soul, he's waiting on God, right? And so further, another comment on this waiting, the waiting is not vague. It's not vague. He's not just waiting that God would do something, anything, Um, perhaps that God would destroy David himself, perhaps that he would save him, who knows? No, this is not that. David says, from him comes my salvation. So David waits for God specifically, but even more specifically, he waits for God to save him. Sure, David does not know um, what form this salvation will take, right? Like what it will look like. But he knows that God saves. He knows that that is in God's very character, that God is one who saves. So he knows that God will not abandon him, but rather that God will always be there, and ultimately that God will save him somehow. And so David waits specifically for that. He continues on. He says, He alone is my rock and my salvation. And so God himself is the salvation. Not only does David's salvation come from God, which is what we got in verse 1, but now in verse 2, David adds, he goes further, he says, he alone is my rock in my salvation. It is all God. And so again, though David may be, and he is, actively trying to improve his situation, he has no confusion over where his salvation will ultimately come. He knows it will not be by his own hands, He knows that his salvation ultimately is God himself. And so then further, there's this idea of God as David's rock. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And what great peace there is to be found in these words, rock, fortress. David says that God is his rock, that God is not moved, that God does not change. He's firm. He's steady. He is like a massive rock formation in this way. And so the biggest rock or even mountain that you can picture, um, we took a trip out to Arizona to the Grand Canyon earlier this summer. That's a massive rock formation. That is truly, I don't use the phrase with exaggeration, mind-boggling. I've told folks that you feel dizzy as you're looking at it, and you really try to make your mind accept how big it is. But the thing is, God makes even that look like dust, look like nothingness, right? And how incredible is that? The biggest thing you can imagine is not big enough to even do justice to the permanence, to the firmness of the person of God, right? So even if we were to combine all of the rock formations in the world, um, it it still wouldn't be enough, really. God, the one who has always been, think about that, always been, so you go backwards on the timeline, forever, still there, the one who will always be, stretching infinitely into eternity in both directions, the exact same as he is today, infinitely in both directions. This God is the rock. 
And David knew that he was his rock. Because he said, he alone is my rock. So there's an ownership there. It's very personal. And not just rock. He didn't stop there. But fortress as well. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. So I think with rock, we get this idea of a firm foundation, right? It's kind of the, the bottom part, fixed 100%. But a firm foundation, if that's all you had, you could have a rock-solid foundation. But if you're under attack and all you've got is a foundation, I'm sorry, that's not good enough, right? You're still exposed. You're exposed from above, from the sides. And so David makes clear, he says, yes, God is my rock. He's firm. I'm safe there. And further, why am I safe? He's my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And so there's just a further emphasis of this protection that we're talking about, this refuge, this salvation from God. And so David begins the psalm saying in verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. And it's that declaration of intense focus, of expectation, exclusive focus even, right? In the depths of David's inner man, there is peace. And we said it's not this lazy sort of peace. It's an active focus. It's an action of its own, really. And he wrote then that from him comes my salvation, that this was the expectation, that God will save. And then further just now, he alone is my rock and my salvation. And then even further than that, my rock, my fortress, right? So David is just pounding this idea. And with these things settled then, he makes what's a somewhat obvious conclusion, to be honest. He says, I shall not be greatly shaken. And in some translations, it even says, I will never be shaken. And so David is saying, hey, look, as I stand on God, my rock, within God, my fortress, and I focus on God, my Savior, and his salvation, in some ways it's a no-brainer to conclude, I shall not be greatly shaken. For indeed, the question has to be asked, who could shake him? Who could? Um, it's very much, you know, it brings my mind at least to Romans 8, where Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody, right? And so David concludes there, I shall not be shaken, period. Okay, and then we move on into the verses 3 through 4, though. Let me read those again, verses 3 through 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And so with verses 3 through 4, there's a change in subject, right? David's focus is turned. And in truth... David still is steadied on God, his rock. He still is secure within God, his fortress. And he's still waiting for the salvation of God. None of that has changed. All of that is still true. But here in verses 3 through 4, what we see is that David's gaze is turned somewhat. I kind of picture it like he's looking outside of the fortress, you could say. He's still inside of it. That's still true. But his attention is drawn outside. He sees, as it were, the onslaught of his enemies coming. And he even begins by addressing them directly there in verse 3. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. It's really the cry 
of someone who is just exhausted by relentless foes. How long? Will you never cease? Will you stay at this forever? Will you never grow tired or weary of this, right? And David likens their battering as to those who are pounding down a leaning wall or a tottering fence. And I think there's a certain vigor that comes when someone believes they are near their goal. And so it's almost like this is a fence they're taking down, and it seems like it is just about to give. They've got David on the run. He's out in the wilderness. He's away from his own kingdom. All they've got to do is see it through. That's got to be the perspective from David's enemies, and he realizes that. It's like they they think they're pounding something down, and they're just this close, right? They're just about to get it. It's worth noting briefly um, that the King James translates verses 3 and 4 slightly differently. Um, KJV reads like this. It says, How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. So the King James translates the wall and the fence as being David's enemies. Um, It basically stands alone in this translation, and so that's just not the direction that I've chosen to go with. So we're going to stick with the idea of bowing wall, tottering fence, as being David from his enemy's perspective. That's the the majority translation. And so, as verse 3 turns into verse 4, David's focus remains on his foes. He considers them now more internally, you could say. He's not going to address them directly anymore. He says in verse 4, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. In speaking in the third person in this way, it's almost as if he's even observing himself, right? he's, He's looking at the situation from a removed perspective. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. And it seems that just as exclusive as the trust that David has professed in God, and that we saw so clearly in verses 1 through 2, so exclusive also is the determination of his foes to destroy him. They are distracted by nothing else. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. And with seemingly endless energy and passion, they feel like they're right about to get him. And as if this were not enough, It seems that they are neither guided nor restrained by any moral code either. David goes on in his description of his foes. He says, They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And so as I mentioned at the beginning, verses 1 through 7 are very personal. And again, I think in many ways David is using them to set an example for everyone. Because verses 8 through 10 are going to be more instructional. But look forward for a second at verse 8, and I think we can sort of use it to understand what is the example that David is setting here in verses 3 through 4. And so in verse 8, we see this. David's going to command in verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. And so it is this pouring out of heart that I think David is exemplifying for us in verses 3 through 4. He's not just trying to put on a brave face in the presence of God. He knows that this would be futile. That'd be ridiculous, in fact. In fact, David wrote in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And so with this in mind, David is honest before God. 
He's transparent about his concerns. He knows it would be futile to try to hide them from God. And so it's this transparent honesty, this pouring out of heart, that I think David is exemplifying for us in verses 3 through 4. And here's the thing, though, and you might relate to this. Sometimes, I think, what starts off as just an honest pouring out of heart, just an honest assessment of your situation, you're just trying to lay it all out there, that sometimes, that can lead you down a road you weren't intending to go down. Sometimes that can very quickly, if we let the flesh have too much say, lead to a place of great doubt and anxiety. For example, to say, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? In some ways, that's only a half step removed from going a little further and saying, are you going to stay at it until you succeed? You've not succeeded as of yet, but who's to say that you never will if you keep staying at it the way that you have? Or how's about, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. That is perhaps very narrowly removed from continuing, and this determined focus, surely it must meet its goal eventually. Or finally, when David says in verse 4, they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. I think that contemplation such as this, if not bounded, could perhaps lead to wondering, yeah, and what exactly has all of my truth-telling gotten me? What exactly has all of my honesty gotten me? Because here I am, on the run from my own kingdom, pursued by my own son, and a bunch of people who could care less about the truth. But, Right when it seems that perhaps David might go too far with this pouring out of heart, he doesn't. He shows us how to follow his example in not going too far. Verse 5 comes to the rescue, you could say. Let's read that. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock in my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. And so with verse 5, David is snapped back to the task at hand, to the never-ending, in fact, battle in this flesh that we all must wage, which is to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so again, while verses 3 through 4 were appropriate, necessary, good, Again, I even think he's going to go on to command us to follow his example of that action of pouring out our heart, right? I also think they can be dangerous if they're allowed to go on without bound. That very quickly, this pouring out of heart can turn into an unnecessary and inappropriate focus on our circumstances. And so David, though, he shows us here how to be honest before God. Again, it'd be pointless to be anything else. So how to do that, how to pour out your heart and just leave it out there but how to bound that honesty of heart with God's truth, right? And so again, there's a time for verses 3 through 4, but I think the lesson here, at least in part, is that it, A, must be brief, and that it, B, must be necessarily followed by something like verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, waits in silence, for my hope is from him takes charge, right? He grabs the reins. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to pour out our heart, but we're not going to get so sunk into that 
that we forget about God's truth in the matter. And I think that's what he's showing us. So again, verses 5 through 7 uh, are very nearly a total repeat of verses 1 through 2, but there is one very key difference. Again, listen to verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. And so in verse 1, we had a simple, though you know profound, declared fact, a settled truth, it would have seemed. This was the state of things in verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. That's just how it is. But then by the time we get to verse 5, it's changed a little bit in an important way. In verse 5, David says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. It's no longer just a statement of reality. It's now a command. And so in verse 5, David is commanding himself, commanding his soul, his inner man, to return to the state of things which we began with in verse 1. David here is really giving us a wonderful example of what Pastor Bill refers to as talking to yourself rather than listening to yourself, right? I really like that phrase. Talk to yourself rather than listen to yourself. And I think that's exactly what David is doing here. So as he contemplated his situation, as he contemplated his foes in verses 3 through 4, it perhaps, it could have turned into a great opportunity for the flesh to bring doubts, to bring anxiety. Our flesh can often become very loud, very assertive when we kind of give it this opportunity. Like, yeah, my situation's pretty rough. I I don't know when these guys are going to stop. They don't seem to care about truth, right? And sometimes our flesh can kind of raise its hand and say, yeah, you're toast. (laughs) You know, you you don't stand a chance. But no, David, rather than to listen to what his flesh would have to say as a response to his circumstances, David says, now be quiet. Here's what God has to say. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. It's stern. It's firm. There is no option to disobey it. He is commanding himself to submit to the truths that God has revealed to him in Scripture. I think that's an awesome thing. And while this is great for internal conversations, and that's kind of the topic at the moment, right? David's doing it as a bit of an internal dialogue. We can do this internally, and we must. I think this pattern of verses 1 through 7 also has something to say with how we might counsel someone else who might be going through a hard time. And so the first lesson is that we must recognize that there is a need to leave space for verses 3 through 4. There is a need for that pouring out of heart. Again, while David's particular command is to pour out your heart to God, and that's what he was really doing, there's, there needs to be room for that with our relationships with others, too. They need to have opportunities to grieve, to pour out their heart, to explain, you know, in an honest manner um, what they're feeling, what they're dealing with. That's, that's good. There needs to be room for that. But if seasons like that go on uninterrupted, there has to come a time when we do sort of interject with a verse 5 and say, hey, friend, you know, I mean this out of all lovingness, and I, and I understand this is a hard time, but at some point, you've got to bring truth to bear and say, hey, you've got to wait on God. I understand everything that's going on. I understand your circumstances, right? But you need to focus on God. And we all, at certain times, need someone to come alongside us and say, hey, hey, look up. You know, I, I get it. I'm down here with you. I want to be here with you. And I, I understand everything that's going on. But out of my love for you, I need to tell you, focus on God. Focusing on your circumstances isn't going to do anything for you, right? And so again, yeah, there's room for 
grieving, for lamenting, for crying. There's room for that. But it can't go on uninterrupted. Eventually, God's truth has to be brought to bear on it. And so continuing on with our consideration of verses 5 through 7 then, um, there are a couple more additions when compared to verses 1 through 2 beyond just the uh, statement turning into a command. The first is the usage of the word hope in verse 5 rather than salvation, which is what David used in verse 1. And so David uses hope slash expectation, depending on your translation. He uses it interchangeably with salvation, really, because again, salvation by God himself is the very thing that David is hoping and expecting for. It is his hope, his expectation. And so he swaps those around. And note well also that the idea of hope here really is more closely related to that other word of expectation. This is not, I hope it's sunny today, or I hope I get a big bonus this year. No, this is something that David is fully confident will be realized. It just hasn't been yet. It's not just wishful thinking, which is oftentimes how I think our use of the word hope basically boils down. And so David's hope is the very thing that he expects to happen. He knows not when nor how, but he knows by whom it will come, and that is enough for him. The other noteworthy addition when compared to verses 1 through 2 is David's use of the word glory in verse 7. He says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. Uh, Instead of glory, some translations have it as honor. On God rests my salvation and my honor. So it brings with it this idea of reputation. He says that on God rests my glory, my honor, or my reputation. David has staked it all on God. He's saying God will save me in his own time, in his own way, and what others make of me in the meantime really does not matter. That's God's domain. He, in fact, instructs his soul to pay no attention to it. And so now we've crossed into verse 8, into the second half. And so we're leaving behind the very personal first half of verses 1 through 7, and we're going into the much more instructive bit in uh, verses 8 through 12 there. So getting on to verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Trust in him at all times. It's exactly what it sounds like, really. I think we still have a pretty good idea of what it means to trust. It brings with it these ideas of confidence, of boldness, of security, trust. Trust in him. Certainly, when he says him, it's a reference to God, given the crystal clear context that we find it in. And then, at all times. And so I am obligated, as I'm sure you realize, to inform you that I have gone back to the Hebrew text, and I've looked into this phrase at all times, And I have found, much to your surprise, I am sure, that it really does mean at all times, always, in every season, in every hour, with every circumstance, in every mood, at all times. And when it comes to commands like this, for me, the name of the game is always making sure that there is no route of escape for my flesh. The flesh is a squirmy thing. And I think it is always looking for ways to get out of these absolute statements, to find that that one one exception that surely must be there because that's a little heavy at all times. And so let's break that down a little bit 
to make sure that all routes of escape are blocked off, so to speak. We must make no provision for our flesh. So let's start by enumerating the times um, that this does not include. All right, good. And so we can move on to the times that it does include then, right? And so how's about this for a breakdown? Um, Big times, small times, and everything in between. Big times first. What do I mean by that? Maybe this is a large trial that's going on in your life. Um, Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's losing your job. Maybe it's losing a loved one. Maybe it is struggles with within your family or with a spouse. Maybe these are the things that we think of as big times, right? And yes, these are included in all times. We need to trust God in these times. I think during the big times, the argument that the flesh makes is something along the lines of, you know, surely this is a grand enough moment, a large enough trial, that it would be understandable or even allowable to not trust God with this. Isn't that just asking too much? I think that's how the flesh argues. But no, it isn't asking too much. That's the answer. Because again, God is infinite. God is all-knowing. The largest trial, your worst nightmare, maybe you're even going through it right now, that you can conceive of this very second is simply not large in light of God. It isn't. He knows the beginning from the end. And he can see, and actually, believe it or not, always has seen, not only the moment your trial began, not only the moment that you find yourself in, but the end of it too. He has always seen that, and he does right now. And so perhaps um, it's possible that the reasons for your trial are completely beyond your understanding. I think that's entirely feasible. But you need to trust that God is in it. That whatever the many reasons are for the trial, and I think it's entirely likely that an infinite God often has more than one reason for doing any particular thing. Whatever the reasons are, we need to trust that he is somehow using it for your good. Romans 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so those are the big times. And what about the small times then? And so I think in certain ways, the small times are sometimes harder than the big times when it comes to trusting God. Because I think in a sense, we know about God's bigness. I think for many of us in the room, this is probably not the first time that you've heard someone say, God is really big, and then walk you through all the ways that's true. I think we even just know that from seeing his creation. We see that God is big. And so then, when the small stuff comes, I think the flesh and the devil, really, has a pretty good argument to make, at least it would seem. He says something along the lines of, your God is so big, all you're dealing with right now is you're tired, or you're just having a, you know, a disagreement with a friend. It's, it's not a big deal. Surely you can handle this and leave the big stuff to God, right? It almost seems like a reasonable division of labor. We think, yeah, maybe that makes some sense. No, but it doesn't. We need to trust God at all times, whether big or small. Um, It reminds me of the proverb that says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. 
And so then last, as we break down all times, how about the in-between times? And what do I mean? I just mean, how's about those times when someone were to come to you and say, hey, how's it going? You'd be like, yeah, it's going pretty well. And they'd say, what's going on? And you'd say, nothing really, you know? Life's just sort of happening. Nothing good, nothing bad, just sort of normal life. I think these times, if it's even possible, are perhaps even harder than the small times because not only are, it's not even that we're asking the question, should we be trusting God? I think when there's nothing going on, we're not even asking the question. We're just not trusting God. We're just sort of coasting in the circumstances. But again, there are no exceptions. Whether you're going through a trial, whether it's big or small, or if you're not, if life just is kind of happening, sort of normal, we need to trust God at all times. And I don't just mean, especially referring to, um, you know, the in-between times or the medium times, whatever. I don't just mean that you need to do that as preparation for the bad stuff that's coming, right? It's not like, hey, things might be good right now, but you better start trusting God before he smacks you down. That's not what I'm getting at. Sure, it's true in a sense that no season lasts forever, right? Yes, we know that God will bring hard times that will follow good times, but that's not the only reason to trust him during the good times. You see, the good times are just as much an opportunity to glorify God as the hard times are. And if we're not trusting God, then we're not going to be taking advantage of those opportunities to do exactly that. Okay, so David continues on, and so will we. Verse 8, pour out your heart before him. And we spent some time talking about this already and what an interesting admonition it really is. Um, in fact, we already read a portion from Psalm 139. And what he goes on to say in Psalm 139, we talked about how God knows his thoughts, right? What he goes on to say there is, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And so God already knows what he's going to say. He already knows what you're going to say. And yet the command still is, pour out your heart before God. You still need to come before him. God still wants you to come and tell him what he already knows as our loving father. And I do think it's worth saying here that for some of us, there is no natural tendency to do this, to pour out our hearts. For some of us, it's easy. For some of us, something goes wrong, and we're, it's like still happening, and we're like dialing the phone number of our mom or of a friend. We're very quick to like pour out what's happening. But for some of us, that's not the case. Um, for some of us, we're more tend towards bottling things up from holding it in, and that's not the way. David does say, he says, pour out your heart to God. It's a command. All right. We are running low on time here, people. So let's move right along. Let's jump down then into verses 9 through 10. And actually, you know, I can't gloss over it. Verse 8, just to mention it quickly, he expands it, right? He says, God is a refuge for us. I think it's important just to note that because he was so personal with it in the first half, in verses 1 through 7. There was so much my, I, me, right? David. But he wants to be clear, and I want to be clear, that he says there in verse 8, God is a refuge for us. And so he is pulling us into that, okay? So let's just hustle on through then. 
verse 9. So we're going to move into those two counterexamples now of things that we are not to put our trust in. Verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. And so there's really two examples here, if you break it down, of things that we are not supposed to put our trust in. We are supposed to trust God, and now we are not supposed to trust A, people, and B, money. And so first, this idea of people. He breaks people down. He says low estate or high estate. Your translation might have it as um, the powerful or the common, the rich or the poor. And he says neither are worth your trust. In a sense, to say that you shouldn't trust someone who's not powerful probably seems obvious. Why would we? But what he goes on to tell us is that that's really everyone. That there is, there, he breaks people into two camps basically to show you that there's not two camps. That the truth is there's not, you know, in God's eyes at least, the uh, powerful and the weak, the rich and the poor. No, he says the reality is you're all poor. We're all poor. We're all weak. None of us really have anything to offer compared to what God has to offer us. And he says, I love the analogy he uses, um, in the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Picture like an old-fashioned scale, right? We're talking like the metal bar with the fulcrum in the middle and the two like hanging baskets on either end. David is saying if you were to put all of humanity on one side of it, and then so much as breathe on the other side that the whole thing would go clanging up, that the basket would go crashing into the beam. It's like there's nothing there. That's what he's saying. He's saying humanity has nothing to offer you. Don't trust in man. And then he talks about money as well in verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. And basically he's saying, hey, whether gotten by neutral or even good means, that's that second part, if riches increase, like, hey, nothing wrong with that, doesn't mean you did anything wrong, if riches increase, or if you think you're going to go out and get it by bad means, right, extortion or robbery, he says, whatever the case, put no trust in money. It reminded me of what I preached on last, which was Luke 12, because there's a parable told there in Luke 12, um, let me just read you the concluding verse of it, of someone who has fallen into this exact trap, who has, in fact, set their heart on riches. And hear what God has to say to that man. Luke 12, verse 20. God said to the rich man, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. In the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so money is not worthy of our attention. It's not worthy of our trust. God is worthy of our trust at all times. And so let's jump right forward then and wrap up with verses 11 through 12. So this brings us to the conclusion of the psalm. I like how the New Living Translation has the beginning of verse 11. It says, God has spoken plainly, and I have heard it many times. I think that's good. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Again, right? God has spoken plainly, and I have heard it many times. And it is a, a plain statement there from David. Really, his conclusion 
is these three attributes of God's character. First, it's his power. He says that power belongs to God. Second, it's his faithful lovingness. He says, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And then third is this idea of his justice. And he really connects it to his lovingness. He says, um, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. And that rendering to a man according to his work, that's really God's justice, his aspect of justness. In this conclusion, these, these attributes of God, they're really the basis for the whole psalm, right? The fact that God is powerful, the fact that God is loving, the fact that God is just, this is the very foundation upon which David's initial statements are built. That is the only reason God is worthy of waiting in silence on, because of who he is. He is God, and he owns power. Did you note that? David didn't just say God is powerful. He said that to God belongs power. To God belongs steadfast love. That he always renders to a man according to his work. And so this God, this God alone, is worthy of this waiting on, this expecting, this trust that David has commanded us to. And so we are out of time. But allow me to just conclude our time with one final thought. So, throughout this psalm, David has declared over and over that God was his salvation, that his salvation came from God. He talked about God being his refuge, his fortress, his rock. Um, In verse 8, David made clear that God is big enough for all of us. He said he's a refuge for us. And all of these truths are deeply comforting. But what I need you to understand is that these comforting truths are not universally true. Here's what I mean. Not everyone in the world finds themselves within this fortress. And even more troubling than that, there are in fact many people who suppose themselves to be within this fortress, who suppose themselves to have God as their refuge, who certainly do not. And so the truth is that there is, in fact, only one way, only one door in to the fortress of God. Only one way to find shelter in this almighty God that we worship. And it is by repentance from sin through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. It was Jesus himself who said in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And earlier, in that same book of John, we read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, excuse me, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so if you are someone who has repented from their sins, who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, then I hope you have found this psalm to be as encouraging and as comforting as I have. But if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are still hoping that you will somehow do good enough, 
Um, or that if you keep saying, you know, I'll figure out all that God stuff tomorrow. I don't have time for it today. If that is you, then it is important that you understand that these truths are not yet true for you. God is not yet your fortress if you have not put your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so, in fact, you find yourself in a quite frightening position, actually in opposition to God and his son. But there is great hope for you. If you would humble yourself before God in your heart and plead for his mercy and his grace that he offers through Jesus Christ, he will never turn you away. He will answer your prayer, and he will give you a new heart, one that desires to worship him, one that desires to obey him. And truly, it is then and only then that you will be able to see this psalm for the treasure trove that it is, for the great um, encouraging set of truths that it is. So let me close us in prayer on that note. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word, God. We could never, ever deserve even just one psalm. But God, you have given us nearly 150 psalms and well more beyond that in your word. God, we are so blessed. Lord, thank you for this church where your word is held high, um, Sunday in and Sunday out, and even through our weekly meetings throughout the week, Lord, and even through song. God, I just thank you for a place where we have the privilege, really, of sitting under the teaching of your word. God, what a joy your word is. Lord, I do pray that if there are any here tonight or who are listening over the live stream or maybe someday listening over a recording who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, God, I pray that you would awaken them to the frightening reality that they are not within the fortress. They are looking up at it from the outside. And that is a terrifying place to be, God. But Lord, I thank you that through Jesus Christ, that all who would come and put our faith in him, repenting of our sins as we do so, Lord, that you offer full and free salvation. Lord, you are such a great God. We thank you for all these things. And I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.